Navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Hello, everybody. Hopefully you're all logged in and uh, ready to enjoy this very special episode of the Mentor ESQ podcast. And I say it's a special episode, uh, first of all, because we are recording live. This is live, direct, and uncensored, the Mentor ESQ podcast. And the reason that it's so special and the reason we're going live is because we have a very special guest today, and he gets special treatment because he is Arthur Idala, superstar lawyer, uh, page six man, man about town. And uh, we're so happy, Arthur, to have you. Welcome to my podcast after a year of me uh, begging the hell out of you to get on here. You're worse than my mother with that introduction. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. It's, it's an honor to be here. And, you know, before we start, I would just like to dedicate this episode to the boys from our traditional annual steak night, and in particular, Mr. Michael Sabella, because without him, you and I would not have the relationship that we do. So to Mike Sabella and his new dog, which is named Poppins, Thank you very much for uh, bringing Andrew Smiley and his dad and Jason into my life. So awesome, I, I, awesome. It has enhanced my life, so I appreciate it very much. I, I agree. And uh, Mike Sabella and I went to law school together a long, long time ago. And uh, he introduced me to Arthur a long, long time ago. And I've been indoctrinated as sort of a, a special uh, yeah, you know, yeah. special guest to the uh, ex-district attorney crowd. And we do our steak night for a couple decades now, and uh, I've taken my licks from everybody for not actually having ever been a prosecutor. Well, I know, but you've sang the songs that need to be sung at the end, and we literally mean singing the songs. It's not uh, you go. <laughs> you've earned your keep, and, and yeah, it hasn't been a long time you've been coming, and it's, yeah. a, it's a wonderful tradition. As you know very well, being a lawyer sometimes can be a real stress, um, and you have to take those moments in time to cherish the, the friendships and the camaraderie that we have. And that is one time of the year, amongst many, that we really all let our hair down. And you and I could say that, Smiley, we're letting our hair down. One um, of the many things you and I have in common are these beautifully groomed bald heads. And uh, we may ask some questions or get some questions. People always ask me, how, how can you shave your head? Do you have to? Did you do it by choice? Did you lose it all? I'm sure you get the same ones. Yeah, and I got to tell you, when... The worst part about being bald is the going bald part. Is that at that awkward point with me? I was like you know, 29. I had just run for city council. If it wasn't for Mike Sabella and Dave Spring blowing off doing their election electioneering, I probably would have won. But so be it. Turned out all right. And right after that, my best friend from childhood just was like, "Okay, Adala, that whole thing you're doing, we're trying to make things look like it's over now. <laughs> just go for it." So, um, Arthur, we get out of the house faster than anyone. I mean, there's none of that, like blow dryer gels and all that stuff. It's for sure. So, let me ask you do you have any interesting trials this year? <laughs> yeah, keeping myself busy during the month of April when I, my wife, who's my law partner, Marianne, was down in Florida with our little son and my oldest son, Luca, 
was out in New Jersey and I was all alone out in Long Island. Um, but I actually didn't have any, it wasn't a trial uh, to keep myself uh, occupied. It was interesting that that first week, I guess it was March. So we'll, I know we're going to talk about this, but Harvey Weinstein's sentencing was March 11th. I went to go see him uh, in the hospital the next day, March 12th. And then, I don't know, March 13th, which was a Friday, was a bunch of, it was like a light day for some reason. And that's basically, that was the last time I wore a suit and a tie until July 29th, when a judge in the Southern District of New York requested my presence for a plea. Um, and I was thinking about it. I think that's the longest I've ever gone since I've been a teenager without wearing a tie. How do you feel? To uh, Poly Prep in Brooklyn. And you had to wear a, a, a jacket and a tie when you went to school. So I've been doing that since I'm 12 years old. Wow. I never had such a span where I didn't. Andrew, I opened up my closet. I guess it was in like June or July. And I just looked at my suits and my shoes. And I'm like, wow, I haven't touched any of this stuff. <laughs> you know, of course, and I think a lot of people can sympathize with me. When I had to put that suit on on July 29th, I'm like, I hope it's going to fit. I hope you get a fit. I've been home. I've been eating. I've been cooking. It fit. Wherever the wood is, it fit. A little tighter, but it fit. And in January and February, you're on trial, the Harvey Weinstein case. You're wearing suits every day. I know when I'm on trial, you know, do you have any superstitions? Sometimes I, I don't change cufflinks or I only wear certain ties on certain days, whether it's opening or, or cross or, you know, how about you? What do you, how do you style for trial? I'm always looking at it from the eyes of the jury. What does the jury want to see? What is it, How does the jury want me to dress? And that's what I'm, I'm always thinking. And um, there are certain days you want to be the center of attention. There are other days you don't want to be the center of attention. And so you also, I, I scale my, so if it's a day I don't want to be the center of attention, I'm wearing kind of like a charcoal gray, totally plain, no design suit. With, you know, a, a solid shirt and a very, you know, subdued tie. And on the days of opening statements or summations, you know, you kick it well, something probably similar to what I'm wearing right now because today's like a really big day, man. <laughs> yes. So you, know, you bring your A game. Yeah. And um, the, you know, it's interesting you mentioned cufflinks. Cufflinks are, let's face it, they're for shirts that are special and usually expensive. And there are a lot of times I won't wear cufflinks during a trial because I think it's so important to really bond with the jury. And, you know, they know that we're lawyers and there's certain assumptions that go with that, whether it's financial or whether you're a snotty snob or any of those things. And my whole thing, and I, I know you're the same way, is it's, to, is to bond with that jury, to make them feel like, you know, hey, we're buddies right here. And I'm very aware of the watch I wear, cufflinks I wear, the pen I use. And I'm not being a phony because I have a ton of shirts that don't have cufflinks. I have a ton of big pens. Um, I have a ton of watches. So it's not like I'm going out and buying something special just for the trial. But, you know, you could determine what makes sense under these circumstances. And truth be told, it's not like my novel idea. I probably got that from one of my friends slash mentors, Emilio Grillo, when we were in the DA's office. And, you know, he always had a Montblanc pen in the office. I'm talking about that when I'm 25 years old. And when we went to trial, I noticed he would never use it. He was always using a big pen. 
And, you know, this is Brooklyn, New York, 1993, 94. I'm like, you know, where's your regular pen that you like live with? And he's like, you know, in front of the jury, we're using a big, we're prosecutors, we're using a big pen, that kind of thing. So um, I don't have any real, real superstition. I'll just tell you one crazy superstition story. Again, going back to when I was in the DA's office, I had, um, in college, I was a real jock, not, but I played ultimate Frisbee and I was really, really into it. And right after law school, I stayed involved. There was one weekend where I played a game and I got a real bad contusion on my thigh, like really bad. Like I ran into this guy, his knee really, I mean, it was a huge black and blue and it was killing me. So I'm about to try second seat of Paul D'Amelia on a homicide in Brooklyn, New York. And for whatever reason, either the elevator was broken or it was too big of a line. He goes, let's walk. And no, he did this the, before the weekend, the Friday before that I played this ultimate Frisbee game. It was on the ninth floor, Andrew. Now, you know, I was 20, whatever I was, 26. You know, I was fine. I could do nine floors. But then after the weekend, I get this kind of this injury. My leg was hurting. He goes, so we go and I press the button for the elevator. He goes, what are you doing? I go, I'm going upstairs. He goes, we got to walk. I go, what do you mean we got to walk? I said, he goes, we, we walk the first day. We got to walk every day. I'm like, bro, my leg, he didn't want to hear anything. We had to walk. And he got the conviction at the end of the day. So, yeah, I'm not a nut like Paul Millier is. Yeah. <laughs> it's superstition, whether it's with the trials or the New York Yankees. But I am, I am a big fan of making yourself as approachable and um, acceptable to a jury as possible. So let me ask you, because you are an approachable guy, Everybody, you know, you're, you're a people person. You love to talk with everyone. Um, you're very well-liked and beloved by those who know you. And then you get thrown into the shit storm. <laughs> you get thrown into the shit storm of the Harvey Weinstein trial. We're cursing on this podcast? <laughs> Whose podcast? Yeah, we're cursing? Oh, yeah, you're allowed to curse. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, my mom wouldn't like that either, but okay, go oh, ahead. Sorry, Mom. Um, so you're, you're in the middle of all this, and you've got – um, you know, the Me Too movement at its peak, Harvey Weinstein, public enemy number one, the trial's coming up in New York, and they decide that it's not enough. He doesn't have enough good defense lawyers. He needs to go, you know, and bring in the Mariano Rivera, and here comes Arthur Idala. It's in New York. They need to bring in the big guns, and you couldn't have gotten a lot of fan mail uh, defending him, and you're getting people yelling and screaming, I'm sure. How did you navigate that, um, you know, the media circus, the having such a big name as a client, knowing that this it was your job to do your work on the trial. But the, the ripple effect was really huge around the nation and possibly the world with, you know, what Harvey Weinstein was representing during this time period. OK, so let me just break this down in a couple little pieces because you asked a lot of objection, compound question. Um let me correct the record. I was far from brought in to be the close of the Mariana Rivera of, of Harvey Weinstein's team. The truth is, is that Jose Baez was his lead trial attorney. He wanted a local lawyer. Jose and I have been friendly for quite some time now, I think like a dozen years. Um, so he called me, he brought me in. And it was like kind of an audition you know, with, with Harvey because there were a lot of people being brought in. and But I was... Um, I was Jose's guy to be brought in. And um, ultimately, you know, I passed the test. I, I tell people that first day that Jose brought me into Harvey Weinstein's office on 42nd Street in Manhattan, it was literally like, if I had to describe it, 
it was like two dogs in a park smelling each other's butt. Like he was like checking me out and I'm checking him out. And you know, there's all the, the myth and the legend of, of Harvey Weinstein and Pulp Fiction is I mean, one of my favorite movies ever. My Mario Romano and I, we must have watched it 15, 20 times together. Um, but ultimately, I guess I passed the test. But he, um, he was, I, I'm still representing him on a lot of things. His civil stuff is his appellate stuff. Um, you know, he was a challenging client. That's the nicest way I could put it. Um, and I've been very fortunate to represent a lot of high profile people, a lot, but, you know, let's, Lawrence Taylor is a pretty high profile guy, especially in New York City. So was Anthony Weiner when I turned over his laptop to the FBI. Um, but Harvey was, he was on another level. Um, and I was, I was reluctant, I, I wouldn't say we were reluctant, but I was thoughtful about whether I wanted to get involved in the case because, you know, Andrew, you, you and I have a lot of similarities. We have our fathers and, and, but I have a little bit of a bigger practice than you in terms of how many people work with me. And after my immediate family, they're my family, right? And, and I have to take care of them. And so my main concern, and I'm not, sounds a little selfless. I'm not trying to come off as I'm some great guy, but I wanted to make sure representing Harvey Weinstein was not going to hurt our firm in a way that it hurt the other lawyers in the firm because clients weren't going to come to us anymore because we got this scarlet letter on, on us. Um, so I did have a, when, once we, I kind of knew we were in the game to be retained and be out there front and center. You know, I had a meeting with all the lawyers right here in the office right where I'm sitting and saying, you know, what, what's, what does everyone think? And there were some people who, you know, were very worried. Um, and ultimately, and again, this is why you and I practice law with a safety net underneath us and everyone else doesn't. Who do you think I called and asked? My father. And in a way that only my father could, who has been a criminal defense attorney for almost 60 years, yeah, you know, you worry about you worry about representing a bad guy. You're worried about a guy who people don't like. What kind of business do you think we're in? He's like, you, you think I represented the World Trade Center bombers from 1993? You know, I won a popularity contest. He's like, oh, that's what we do. Number one, is the guy going to pay you? And number two, you're going to go in there and you're going to make sure that the prosecutor does their job the right way, that the judge does his job the right way. You, you present their evidence, you cross-examine, you challenge their evidence, and, you know, let the chips fall where they may. So kind of once I got the okay from daddy, and at 52 years old, I have no problem telling you. I mean, here's my office, just to let you know how, how close he is. I mean, he's right Papa here. Lou. There's Padre Lou, and, you know, he's always watching me and making sure I do the right thing. He's he's my Jiminy Cricket, always let your conscience be your guide. And once he said, okay, go for it, um, we went for it, and then things just got a little odd in a short amount of time because then Harvey and Jose didn't get along, and now Jose Baez is about to exit the case. And I went to Jose, and this is the truth, and I said, Jose, look, you brought me in. If you're leaving, you want me to leave with you, I'll go. And he was, couldn't have been – he was like, no, absolutely not. The guy's going to pay you. You go. You stay. And, and I, I went into Harvey at this point, and now it's the relationship changes because now there's no buffer between Harvey and I, which was yeah. Jose. And I was just like, look, if you want my opinion, I think you should have a woman, like a very well uh, regarded 
trial woman to and then and then I kind of backed out and then Harvey did his whole thing and he did his due diligence and he brought Donna Rotuno in. We met at Harvey's office, then we came to my office. We we wound up having martinis, like my whole office, not just the two of us. And it was obvious that she had what it takes to go into the courtroom. Then she brought in her, I don't think he's technically, he's not technically a law partner, but they sit next to each other and they try cases together. Um, Damon Sharonis, and that was ultimately the trial team. And it was hard. I mean, again, I'm talking to family here. It yeah. was hard because um, on upon my suggestion, you know, Harvey made her, you know, the, the centerpiece of the whole trial. And they, that's not the role that I've played for many, many years now. Um, but we, we didn't have a whole word on some trial team. And that's not easy, Andrew. Yeah. Um, they were total strangers. We're total strangers. Harvey's a total stranger. We're thrown in to, you know, one of the most stressful events uh, in quite some time in the world of trial. But we really, you know, Dada and I kind of respected each other's space and each other's um, abilities. The media thing got a little tough because the New York media all knows me on a personal basis because I'm old now and I've been hanging out with them. So, you know, handing everything off to Donna was was what, what we all agreed on. But I did a couple of local interviews, like with Rosanna Scott on Channel Five. But the big national ones, look, that was that was Donna, and I think she did a, a very fine job speaking on his behalf. And and look, ultimately, Bobby Weinstein's in prison, and you can't say that we had any great results. But those of us who try cases, in a case where the public sentiment was overwhelmingly against him, yeah. You know, we beat a bunch of the counts. The jury was out eight days. Eight, maybe well, that's over the weekend, I believe. I, I, it's a fog now. Huh. Um, and, I, you know, Judge Burke, I have no problem telling you this. I, he was just in over his head. Um, I'm not going to put this on me. Aaron Damon did most of the heavy lifting at the trial. But I think if we had a different judge like... Um, you know, Judge Farber, who's in that courthouse, uh, Judge Dwyer, for sure, who's in that courthouse, Judge Obis, who's in that courthouse, who are older, more experienced judges. I don't think a hung jury would have been out of the question at all. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there were some times where we were happy after some witnesses, and there were times where we weren't so happy after some witnesses, and that's, yeah. well, that's typical in most trials. Um, but... We survived. It wasn't a fun trial. You know, Andrew, sometimes when you try a case, yeah. you have a good time. I mean, I tried Lawrence Taylor's case, and there were some real stressful moments. And then there were other times where um, we, we, we actually laughed. I mean, after my summation in Lawrence Taylor's case, I turned around and I, and I walked towards him, and he's just got this big smile and his, his big white teeth. And the judge dismisses the jury, and the judge leaves, and he just grabs me and goes, Come here, man. Come here. And I'm not going to say the curse words that he said, but um, he goes, you're a pit bull, man. You're a and he goes, you're the MVP. You're the MVP. And you know what he did, Andrew? This is this that is cool, I, man. He gave me in my office his MVP trophy. He's wow. the only defensive player in recent history. When I say recent history, I think 
maybe one other person ever who played defense. Wow. The MVP trophy of the NFL always goes to an offensive player. When I say only, I mean yeah. maybe two times out of 50 some odd years, I went to a defensive player and he gave me his trophy. Wow. And we had a lot of fun. The Harvey Weinstein trial was not a lot of fun. Yeah. For a lot of reasons. Um, and one of them was was Judge Burke. He just he didn't make it. It was not a pleasant experience. Um, and um, you know, I tried a case in, in Suffolk County recently, recently three years ago. Now I'm going back tomorrow because it was reversed. But even though that that case didn't end the way we wanted, well, ultimately it has. Now it's been a reverse, but we didn't get the verdict we wanted to. Michael Jacarino, my partner, and I. We had an exquisite time. It was one of the, it was maybe the best trial I've ever done, along with uh, Abe Hirschfeld, what I did with Mario Romano. And the judge was great. Everyone was great. Um, it was just that it, it, that didn't exist in the Harvey Weinstein trial. Some people see the media and they get overwhelmed and they don't know how to act, and so they go into some kind of defensive mode and, you know, like man up. Yeah, I don't know if that's politically incorrect to say man up. No, but I don't know what you're allowed to say. But, you know, just be, I really mean by saying man up is just be yourself. Yeah, you know, just because I mean, look, there was 150 members of the media in the courtroom every day. Um, but so, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be who you are. And Judge Burke just wasn't the Judge Burke who many of us know, who off the bench is like a, normally a really nice guy. Um, but those whatever how long we were on trial for he didn't make it really nice uh for most of us what a lot of people don't realize when they see guys like us that try cases and you know they especially if it's anything that's newsworthy and they're reading tidbits or things are leaking out they don't understand that the the dynamic in the courtroom is so key and you know, different judges and different days. And, you know, and that's what's so why we have to be on point every day and wake up in the morning, be ready to go because you just don't know what curveballs are going to be thrown. But, you know, as a trial lawyer, you're going to get a curveball that day. And that's what's really tricky about what we do. We, we plan like crazy. We prepare for everything. But, you know, we're always getting thrown curveballs and uh, it doesn't help when you've got so much else to focus on. Yeah, and there's, there is no substitute for um, the preparation for that because you, you're right. You don't know what curveball is coming your way, and you just hope that you've been prepared. Yeah, you you know you've gone over it. Look, and so if, if you look at it, it actually goes back to the bar exam, right? Yeah, you don't know what questions they're going to ask you. You don't know what those six essays are going to be about. So what do you do? You just study basically from like Memorial Day until. Um, I think my bar exam was like July 31st, August 1st. Right. And you just hope that, okay, I got all this stuff in here. And when they start quizzing at me on it, I'm going to have an answer to it. It's the same, you know, to some degree when you're in the courtroom. And, you know, in, not in that, not in the Harvey Weinstein case, in every case. Um, so that's it. That's my, you know, Harvey Weinstein for an update for breaking news. I mean, in, in, I probably within the next two weeks, we are going to file a, a motion for bail pending appeal. Um, How's he doing now? He's okay. Yeah. Where is he? Where is he? He's all the way upstate by Buffalo. I think it's called Wempe, W-E-M-P-E, I think that's the name of the, the, the facility he's in. And I mean, I'm not, I don't want to sound like a jerk, but oh, he's happy where he is. Of course, he's not happy, but Harvey Weinstein is a survivor, period, amen, end of story. 
So he has figured out a way to, you know, he's got a routine and he's got, he's got friends and, you know, he, he is a superstar up there. And um, so he's okay. Like, in other words, yeah. he's not calling us every day and crying and, you know, you know, anything like that. I mean, does he want to get out of there? Yes. Does he want the appeal to be successful? Yes. Um, we'll see. I mean, it's going to take appellate judges to have a tremendous amount of intestinal fortitude to say, yep, we're yeah. throwing Harvey Weinstein case out. But as you know, my partner, Judge Barry Cammons, who is, you know, renowned throughout the state as being, you know, a real yeah. scholar, um, he's also very conservative, okay? And he, you know, he hasn't, he's not like that crazy criminal defense attorney that, you know, everyone's been wrong. I mean, he's very, he's very much on point and, and plays it right down the middle. And he's read and worked on the, um, the bail pending appeal motion yeah. so as Alan Dershowitz and they're like if this guy's name was not Harvey Weinstein like we would be very confident yeah. about the outcome here but it's that third rail now I don't know how the coronavirus has derailed or I am saying derailed but just put and, and the coronavirus and the Black Lives Matter you know issues that have come up since his sentencing on March yeah. you know how that's changed and whether that's has been kind of put in the back row right now and whether the judges could make a ruling in Mr. Weinstein's favor in, in accordance with the law without being a banner headline of yeah. the times. It's tricky because we like to believe that the law will control and you and I will read the cases, we'll be working on the briefs, on the appeals, and we're like, yeah, this is, it's clear cut. And then you get a decision on a different, every type of case, different types, and you're like, how did they do this? How did they do this to us? And I've had it on cases of mine. Um, you know, I had that case with the guy on the uh, subway tracks, right? And on the, book, the newspaper, wasn't yes, it? on the cover of, uh, of your local paper, The Post. And um, my local paper. Yeah. Local paper. No, Where do you live? Where do you live? Minnesota? Um, that's right. Your local paper because you're in it all the time. Oh, you're in it, yeah. you're in it today, actually. Everyone Google uh, Arthur Idala The Post. You'll see the latest uh, high profile. Oh, this is espresso. It's not like a shot of whiskey or anything. <laughs> Whatever works. So, you know, it turns out that the appellate court didn't like the fact that my client was drunk and they threw the case out, you know, and it was the worst opinion you ever saw. And it was about to be reversed by the Court of Appeals when we got it resolved. But, you know, because it's Harvey Weinstein, that is going to make a difference in whether what the appeals court wants to do. And there's only so much you can do. Um, so, Arthur, I want to ask you when you were it's interesting how you had to decide whether to take the case. Uh, Harvey's case. And you spoke with your dad and my listeners to this podcast know of my father guy, you know, my dad, he sends his regards. He's, I'm sure he's watching us yeah. right now. And uh, our fathers, uh, for those of you who don't know, our fathers are both legends in our field. They both are dapper with nice mustaches. And uh, and you're right. It's like we get, doesn't care how old we get, doesn't matter. We can still turn to our father and if our father says, you got this, then we feel good, right? I mean, it's everybody needs someone yeah. like that. That doesn't say where you got this. <laughs> Not that, what do you mean? How could you do that? Are you, are you kidding me? I mean, you, know, you know what I've done, and I actually have tears in my eyes thinking about it, is one of the, the, the nicest things I think I've ever done is I've shared my father with my colleagues. Yeah. Mario Romano, I think, has tried two cases with him, a state case and a federal case. Giannis Mazzino, my law partner here, has tried one case with him. It was a homicide. Mike Sabella, 
tried a federal case with him. Um, I've never tried a case with my father. I don't think. Really? I, yeah, yeah. I mean, every case I've tried, he's been in the front row. Um, Does he jump out of his seat? My father used to finally stop doing that. Here's his rule, ready? <laughs> I turn around, he'll be hand me a note or something like that. Um, but it is a tremendous luxury. Oh, and, yeah. you know, when in this political age, when you know people talk about white privilege and things like that, I, I you know, I'm not going into that political stuff, but they, I've definitely been privileged having a father who is just you know a spectacular lawyer. With that being said, however, talking about the privilege part, right. go back to 1992, where I take the bar exam. It's the month of August, Labor Day weekend. Here's the Tuesday after Labor Day weekend. And there's my brother, Noel Downey, whose father uh, worked for the MTA. There's my brother, Josh Hanship, whose father was a social worker. And I can rattle off 10 other of my classmates. They're all starting jobs. And I didn't have a job. I'm home drinking a little, you know, those short fat bottles of Schlitz or Schmitz that are like, you know, it's a dollar ninety nine a case, and it comes with a roll of toilet paper. Um, it's like one in the afternoon. I can tell you, I'm watching Days of Our Lives, shooting darts, and I'm like, I can't believe it. I'm the only one who doesn't have a job, and I did it. And what wound up happening was one day that same week, or maybe the next week, I think it was the next week. It was election day uh, for the primary. And my friend Sal Albanese, who was a councilman, had announced that he was going to challenge uh, Susan Molinari, the congresswoman from Staten Island. And everyone knew it was a huge uphill battle. But Andrew, I had nothing to do. I had no job. <laughs> so I called Sal. I go, Sal, I go, you know what? I'm, I'm going to come help you. And I want to say <laughs> my stipend was $100 a week. Wow. <laughs> a week. But um, I, um, I wound up working alongside a young man named Sean Hines. I'm like, Sean Hines? Sean and I became so close. Sean's dad was the Brooklyn district attorney. So we lose the election on whatever that was, that Tuesday, Wednesday in the general election. Sean says to me, I think the next week, you want to go watch my dad lecture at St. John's? I'm like, I got nothing to do. And at this point, we're waiting for the bar results to come out. Where'd you go to law school? I went to the City University, City University of New York in Queens. Right. So I'm waiting for the bar results. I go, sure. <clears throat> so we show up at St. John's and we walk into the courtroom and um, <clears throat> we, we go with, and the, the class is ending. Like we were supposed to watch him do the whole thing. Sean got the time wrong, right? So now his father goes to Sean. He goes, yeah, that nice job, son. You got here you know, at the wrong time. And he goes, all right, just meet me in my office. Now, for an Italian kid, an Irish, an Italian kid, a Jewish kid, you know, your office is your office. For the Hines family, the office was the Sly Fox Bar across the street from St. John's. So me, Sean, and his dad are there. It was around November uh, 10th, 11th, and we're having a pint of bass ale, Mr. Hines and I and, and his son, and we're talking, I remember we're talking about Mario Cuomo and the election that had just taken place and what's next, and out of nowhere, Andrew, now I am going to curse because I got to do it the right way. Hines takes a slug of his beer, puts it down. He goes, so are you going to come fucking work for me or what? And I almost fell off my boss too. I was like, excuse me? He goes, you heard me. He goes, you don't have a job, right? I was like, no. He goes, so you want to come work for me? I was like, he goes, why did your father call me and ask me? I said, well, you know, I, I know, I, I mean, I wanted to go into the Manhattan DA's office, but I got rejected. And, you know, I think he was embarrassed to say that you're sick. Because my own son, Kevin's in the Manhattan DA's office. So 
So <clears throat> he gave me his card. And he said, call my secretary and make an appointment <clears throat> um, for next week. So I called her the next day, which was a Friday. And she said, come in on Tuesday. And that Monday morning, November 16th, I found out that I passed the bar exam. Ah, so then I went in there on Tuesday. It was the day I came out of the law journal. So I went in to meet Mr. Hines, knowing that I was going to be a lawyer. And he said, okay, you got a job. You start February 1st. So now I had from November 17th to February 1st to party like a rock star. <laughs> um, knowing I had a job coming, I had no money in my pocket. And then, Andrew, I had to move. You know, my parents obviously helped me financially. Well, my dad's old school. As soon as I got that job, <clears throat> he goes, huh, you got enough money? Are you going to be making enough money to pay your rent in the apartment? I go, well, dad, my rent's like $550. I'm making like $300. To, to, he goes, what are you going to do? I go, why, dad, you're not going to help me? Ah, I'm going to help you. Hey, hey, you're being a lawyer now. I know you're on your own. I wound up having to move back into my parents' basement where I hadn't lived since I was 17 years old, you know, when I left oh. for college. I literally cried. The night I moved in, because I was like, I can't believe this is happening. And sure enough, Andrew, the next day, which is my first day of the DA's office, February 1st, 1993, around 6 in the morning, I get my, my shoulder gets shaken. I'm like, what's the matter? I overslept? I'm like, no, Arthur, what do you want to eat for dinner tonight? <laughs> Ma, leave me alone! I mean, it was it's classic. But the rest, the rest is history. I mean, I made some, as you've come to the dinner, I made some of my closest friends. And for those people who are watching especially any of the younger people, you know, you, you don't know what's going to happen in life. So that Labor Day, when I was shooting darts and drinking beer, and Josh is in the Bronx DA's office, and Noel's in the Brooklyn DA's office, and who's working in this like, the corp council, and I, I got nothing to do, and I'm like, I'm such a loser, and life stinks. You know, and then six months later, I'm in the Brooklyn DA's office. I'm tripping over myself in the morning to get to work. I'm having so much fun. I mean, and really, if you, you know, I look at my closest friends, you know, Paul D'Amelio and Jeff Kern and Dave Spring. And of course, Mario is my brother. I mean, those are all people I met in there. Emilio, who I adore. Um, you yeah, know, I was blessed. I mean, I was really, really blessed. And, and then I leave the DA's office. I run for city council and I lose by 108 votes because of Sabella and Spring whooping off as opposed to electioneering. And I just hung my own shingle. And that's almost 30 years ago, whatever it is. I don't know. I lost track of time, but it, it's been fun. I mean, Andrew, let's face it. You and I have been very lucky. We've had a great little run here and you know we're having a good time how so you you go to poly prep you go to college you go to law school eventually as you shared that great story you're in the da's office and then as i've come to learn most you know prosecutors mm -hmm. up when they're going private usually become criminal defense lawyers and uh, did you just you, you know you started your own practice what was the dynamic with you and your dad because he was already doing it did you did you know you wanted to be a criminal defense lawyer? No, definitely not. I mean, when I, when I was really young, like as a, a teenager, there was a guy who would like worked in a house, like a handyman kind of guy who was like around my parents' age. Um, but my mother knew him since he was a teenager and his name was Sonny. And he was always singing. He was always singing Frank Sinatra. He always had a, a, a um, cigarette dangling from his mouth and he was always happy. So I was like, I don't, I'm going to be a painter. Like, this is what I want. Look at this guy. He's the happiest guy in the world. So, like, I'm going to go into college and I want to be a painter. My parents were, like, losing their mind. But I was always a thespian um, in poly prep. I, um, I I was the star of the Music Man my senior year. They did the whole play around me. So can I went to any purchase to be an actor. You can uh, sing? City, yeah, I can sing. I was in a band, Rapid Pulse, for uh, six years. Um, 
We wrote our own music and play, I played at CBGB's, baby, and the Bitter End and Kenny's Castaways. Um, so I went to, to school to do that music and theater. Yep. And the more you learn about that, Andrew, there's certain words you have to learn in that profession that I didn't want to learn. And it's like, excuse me, would you like baked potato, rice, or mashed potato with that order? <laughs> I'm like, I got to be a waiter. I got to like do this. I'm like, so it was the beginning, the end of junior year, and now it's the beginning of, of senior year. So it was the very end of junior year. I could I could remember where I was, what I was standing. I was on a hand, you know, a, a regular phone that you plug in. And I called my parents, and I had never mentioned the word about being a lawyer. And I called my parents. I'm like, Mom, Dad. I go. I've been thinking I may need some money. What do you need money for? I go. I think I want to apply to take the LSAT. And there's a moment of silence, and I hear, <laughs> "What the hell makes you think you could be a lawyer?" So my brilliant father using the reverse psychology on his Italian-American son, if he tells me that I can't do something, now I have to show him I can do it. Right. So I shifted my career from theater to um, to the law. And um, living in the household with my dad, and you may have had a different experience because your father did a different area of the law. When you only do criminal defense work like my father does, there are peaks and valleys and ups and downs and ebbs and flows. We got it too. And we knew that in the house. He would never tell us, but you can know. Like when dad was in a good mood, like money's flowing, <laughs> everything is cool. And when, you know, there would be times where, you know, oh shoot, dad's coming over, better run into the basement. Um, but that was because he like he really only did, you know, one area of law. And he's so much better at that area of the law than I am, because that's all he focused on. He's also got a very special brain. Um, and I don't say that lightly. <laughs> Mario reminds me, the judge, in my, my Mario's trying this case, Mario Romano with my dad in federal court. And they're going back and forth. And she, she just goes, Mr. Idala, why are you forcing me to hold you in contempt? And he goes, because you're wrong on the law, judge. Mm -hmm. And the whole courtroom just goes silent. And whatever, pandemonium broke out. So... But what I didn't want to do from a business point of view, not a legal point of view, was only do one area of law. Yeah. So in the beginning, Andrew, I was doing house closings. I did one divorce case that I hated so much. They gave me $3,500 to handle this divorce case. It was a couple married 50 years. Oh. They wanted a divorce. They to be married. They gave me $3,500. After like having it six months, I gave Roseanne Branda, the best <laughs> divorce attorney on the planet, I gave her $5,000 to take it from me. It was hard. <laughs> um, so I did I did diversify, and I still have. In other words, I've done a lot more uh, than my dad has. And I brought, what I've done is I've brought people in who are much better at those different areas. So I could come in. I could have the conversation. I could speak the language. But I basically allow them to run the show. Um, and it's definitely paid off because – Sometimes the phone rings for criminal cases. Sometimes it doesn't. But when it doesn't, we'll get the call. The phone ringing. My wife does a lot of real estate law. And so we'll get some calls on some real estate litigation or real estate transactions. My cousin, Joey Barada, he does all transactional work, mergers and acquisitions. So, you know, it, it things come and go. But the criminal stuff just came to me, Andrew. I left the D's office. I ran for office. Like a week after losing, I got a call on like some on a rape case. I didn't even, I had no idea how to charge. I had no idea what to do. I stood up on the record for the first time. I put my nose in the pierce. I said, for the people of the state of New York, I'll tell you what you're not supposed to do. Um, but it just, it kind of happened organically between, between being in the DA's office and my dad and the reputation of, you know, his last name. 
it just I didn't go out there to say I'm only going to do criminal defense. It's just kind of what happened. And, and let's face it, it is it's it, it's very interesting. It's very anyone who says that criminal law is not interesting is just not being honest. And those times when someone is really wrong and you could fix that, there is no greater gratification. I mean, there was a crane that fell in New York City in 2008 yep. and it killed seven people. And uh, John Esposito and I tried that case and it was a bench trial. And I'd never done a bench trial ever. So you knew exactly when the verdict was gonna come, which I, you know, so we summed up on Monday. We had Tuesday, Wednesday off, and Thursday the verdict was gonna come in. And Tuesday was a good day. I took my son, Luca, who was a little boy at the time, to the beach, and we just hung out. Wednesday was a disaster. I was a wreck. And I'm. that's not how I am, but you know what it was, Andrew? I knew, I knew, I knew that guy, Billy Repetti, did nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. And there was room for a judge to come up with some sort of a compromise verdict. Um, and when we read... The, when the judge called us in at 11 o'clock in the morning, my heart was beating through my chest. My dad came to watch the openings, went to Italy for a month, came back, watched the closings. Wow. And he was so confident in what the verdict was going to be. I was, I, I thought he lost his mind. Um, it's the only time that I've ever waited for a verdict that I had stomach issues. Uh, and when the judge came in and he took the bench, I mean, I can, we can do a whole thing on that particular case. And when we got to hear not guilty, like the first count, the first seven counts, which was of the, of the murder, I knew the judge was never, I shouldn't say, no, you never know, but I didn't think there was any chance the judge was going to find him guilty. And when they got to the criminally negligent homicide, which was the compromise place where he could have found him guilty of criminally negligent homicide and then given him probation, um, when I saw it, when he said the first not guilty, not guilty. Then you knew it. I went over to Billy, I stood up, I went around John and and I put my hands on his shoulder. He's wearing his Padre Pio pen. I'm like, we did it. We did it. And we sat down. And I'm still hearing not guilty, not guilty. There were tax charges, not guilty. It was a full acquittal. And I'm just breathing. And the media is there. And the judge says, I want to thank everyone. And he goes out the back, Andrew. And I looked at the court officer. He was Jennifer. I said, Jennifer, can I go out the back with the judges? She was sweetheart. You can go anywhere you want. And I went out the back. I'm in the hallway. I've never been there. There's another door. I open up the door. And it's the broom closet. But it's a big broom closet. And Andrew, on, on their oath, I fell on my hands and knees and I was hysterically crying. Like, wow. like, his, like I couldn't control myself. Like wow. I'm trying to regain my composure, but I knew he was innocent. His three daughters that morning handed me a note that I couldn't read wow. because I knew I was going to start crying. Then I, then, well, then I came out after, I, oh, it was right at the beginning of Twitter. And you know all these parties. So I'm on my knees crying, and my phone all of a sudden, and the first person was Shepard Smith. And he has a screen grab of, I think it was ABC News headline that says, uh, Rigor acquitted, cleared of all charges, and Shep just like, holy shit, holy shit. <laughs> That's cool. Everyone else, and I came out, and that, and then I read the card, and they were like, well, no matter what the outcome is, we knew what you did, and we know how hard you tried, and, and you know, thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts. And that feeling of doing right and fixing yeah. the wrong, you know, to some degree, that's what life is, our professional life is all about. 
It really is. It's a great story that you shared. Thank you for that. Because, you know, we have clients, some we really, really believe in, some we're doing our job a little bit, you know, and when it's one of those cases where you just really believe in it and you really want justice for your client and you get it for them, it's just so satisfying. I mean, it's just the most satisfying professionally, personally, and you, you form these bonds with your clients. Um, so that's awesome. Have you are there cases that as a criminal defense attorney that um, you won't take? You know, I've heard some criminal defense lawyers say they won't represent pedophiles or, you know, and then others say, listen, everybody has the right uh, under the Constitution to get their defense. Yeah, I, can't, I can't think of a case. There have been cases where not because of what the person is charged with, but just it wasn't the chemistry there. And I positioned myself um so that I didn't get the case, you know, like for yeah. astronomical number or something like that. Yeah. Hey, look, the truth is Harvey's case was the closest I ever came to that. It's the only time where I was, you know, let's see. And again, that wasn't because of Harvey. And if it was just the law offices of Arthur I. Dollar and it was just me and Marion, like it was 10 years ago. Right. Worry about Imran and Christina and Joan and yeah. all those people who now I kind of part of my family. Um, but, you know, we didn't know what the blowback was. And, and you know, again, being absolutely honest, we may have dodged a bullet, although I don't think so, because of the whole coronavirus. As they said, he got found, he, he was sentenced on March 11th. The world shut down on March 13th. Yeah. So there wasn't time for people to process. But I will tell you, thank God everything here is, is going well and everyone is fine and, and the phones are ringing. And, and I think intelligent people who really know our system and know this great american system that we have um appreciate what we do and, and i learned you know from my father when we were kids and people would ask him you know how could you do that how can you defend those people and he was like oh really you're asking those questions and you're like yes you're not a real american interesting that's interesting. special about our country yeah you know it's that, that's what our forefathers fought against in england it was guilty until proven innocent yeah, you know, we, we switched that around. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I'm surrounded by the most ethical people that I can think of. You yeah. know, my father, Judge Cammons, when he was alive, um, uh, District Attorney Hines, I was very close, and I'm not here to name drop with Justice Scalia. In fact, I have a letter from Justice Scalia after the Crane case that he wrote congratulating me and he said wow. in the letter he said i remember reading about when he got charged thinking this is a perfect uh opportunity for a scapegoat because had billy repetti been convicted just the civil practitioner yep. had he been convicted the city was off the hook for the 850 million dollars right in lawsuits right because he got it fully acquitted now it was the city's fault. it was a civil case yeah all those civil cases so i've been really really i mean the way I look at it, Andrew, is if I screw up, I'm a real moron because I have so many fantastic role models and, and just people who lead by examples and friends and supporters and obviously my immediate family. Like my wife, Marion, is my partner. I mean, how much yeah. more can, can I have someone looking after me and making yeah. sure anything stupid? So I am blessed on so many levels. I go to church on Sunday. I've been going to church virtually on Sunday, which is so cool because my cousin is a priest but he's a priest up in westchester but now that you're allowed to do the virtual thing i get to listen to him and listen to yeah. him, please and it's just 
you know, last week he said, you really need to follow one rule and you can satisfy all of the Ten Commandments. Love thy neighbor as you love thyself. And if you do that, you'll never commit adultery. You'll never steal. You'll never kill. You'll, you know, yeah. I'm going to curse your family out. I mean, yeah. so, you know, if you live your life that way and, and, and always try to do the right thing and help those around you who need help, usually you wake up in the morning feeling pretty good. You know, you yeah. Keep up your bald head. That's it, man. Uh, some people are want to ask you questions. Uh, if you have questions, uh, you're listening to this live and watching us, um, feel free to put those in the chat box and uh, and I'll let Arthur know what you want to ask of him. Unless your name's Mario Romano, you're not allowed to ask any questions. <laughs> anyway, um, so, you know, one of the questions someone's asking and, and we'll we'll sort of pick them out. We got a lot to talk about uh, still. Hopefully people will want to hang in there with us. Well, I got you. I don't want to let you go too fast. Um, so. You know, someone's asking now, what do you do to prepare for the verdict from the verdict note to the time the verdict is read? When you know the verdict is in and you're waiting on it, how do you handle that? Because I'll tell you right now, my answer to that is the worst, worst, worst part of trials is when the jury's out. I hate it. You said you only had your stomach ache that one time. I like I don't eat when I'm on trial. Uh, it's just it's not fun for me to be waiting on a verdict at all. Um. Mario Romano and I tried Abe Hirschfeld's case. It was a murder for hire case. So he was charged with hiring a hitman to kill his business partner so he can inherit the building. And the jury was out for a very long time. And this is when they were sequestered, Andrew, where they would sleep over in the hotel and they would um, they kept him over the weekend and all that stuff. And he, Mario, Mario would come up and pick me, in the, pick me up from the home in the morning and then we'd go to court together. And we were so convinced that we were going to lose that case I would sing. I, I was singing. I was singing. So, ole, ole, ole. We're going down in a ball of flames. It turned out I'm singing that song. It shows you how you don't know. I'm singing that song. The jury was nine to three to acquit. And I mean, I was, I thought it was like, we must have one holding on. We're 11 to one to convict. And so um, there's nothing. I don't have a routine. You know, Andrew, you got to keep it in perspective. And again, I'm a broken record, but this is where I, I lean on my father and what I've learned from him. And, you know, a lot of the guys from the DA's office, when we were prosecutors and you have the family of the deceased and they, you know, they want that conviction. They want that conclusion. I'm with Mike Vecchione, Joe Petrosino, and Angel Morelli. And they're like, look, when you get up in the morning after that verdict, whatever it is, can you look in that mirror the way I'm looking at you and say, hey, I did everything I could. I yeah. used my talents, all my abilities. I stayed up late. I got up early. I did the work. And, you know, is your heart pounding through your chest? I mean, it's bubble, bubble. I mean, that's what oh, bubble. And no disrespect, Andrew, but I've tried civil cases and it pounds in the civil case, but it's not the same way that if you hear guilty, your guy's not going out the back door. Right, right. He's going out the side door. Yeah. On, and his wife's going to be screaming and his kids are going to be screaming and you know his life is going to be insanely altered um in a level that he or she doesn't even, can't even comprehend um so you know there's nothing you really can do except you got to keep calm yeah. um i remember when i was a prosecutor i tried a homicide case with mike vecchione was the head when the verdict came in it was saying guilty under the table he's punching me in the leg <laughs> <laughs> um I always make sure I go over and shake the hand of my adversary. Yeah. 
Um, I tried a case against a prosecutor by the name of Stacey Blanchard, who we got along so well and we're friends this day. Um, and she, we had breakfast the morning that we were waiting for the verdict. And she goes, look, Artie, here's the deal. You're going to win the case, all right? I know you're going to win the case. I ain't shaking hands. I ain't talking to you. We're going to come in. I'm going to grab my files. I'm going to go out, and I'll call you in the morning. And sure enough, she was right. Not guilty. All counts on a homicide. She picked up a file. She walked out. And about 30 the next morning, she called me. She's like, you did a great job, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the thing, Andrew, when you say that period of time when the jury's out is the worst period of time, you're helpless. There's nothing you could do. So, you know, that's, I mean, I'm much more nervous when, before I'm going to open, before I'm going to close, before I'm going to cross somebody. That's when, you know, everything is jumping up. In the, otherwise, I mean, in the Harvey Weinstein case, what I really did was I made a lot of friends because the media, we were all just twiddling our thumbs. Yeah. So there two or three people who I've actually become pretty close with because of uh, just waiting around and seeing what happens. And, and then what I do do is, I put the verdict sheet in front of me when the jury comes in and try to case with Sabella. And we'll talk about that, the substance of the case, but it was a case we needed to do well on. And I was so nervous that I misheard the verdict. And I check off guilty. And then, now they go, and then I hear not guilty, not guilty. And Mike goes, why do you check off guilty? She's, they said not guilty. I said, oh, no, I didn't like shut up. And then my client, a woman, she's like, no, Arthur. They said not guilty. I said, Are you sure? Are you fucking sure? Like that's the only time I like freaked out at the people. Like yeah, they said not guilty, and then forget about. It. And that was it. That night, Mike. Yeah, Mike had tickets to go see Springsteen in the Meadowlands. So we just won this unbelievable case of a wow. woman who killed her father because she was raping him. That we did pro bono, and then that night, Mike and I were so nuts on the floor of the Meadowlands watching Springsteen that like uh. people we knew. Sauce and like, all like, are those you guys jumping around like man down there? And we're like, yeah, yeah, it was uh, that's a highlight of my life. I'm definitely that's, that's awesome. You know, uh, all of us think my friends are gonna make fun of me, but Sabella is a spectacular trial attorney. He is, he is spectacular. He's got the, the charm, the looks, the, the legal acumen. He's really, and, and trying that case the two of us together was, was spectacular. I mean, it's really. I loved every minute of it. Except sometimes he doesn't shut up. He's talking, talking. Besides <laughs> that, he's the best. That's awesome. Uh, Arthur, what do you, you know, you're a high energy guy and you're involved in so many things. And you got so little. Yeah. You know, how do you, what, is there something that motivates you? Is there something deep inside you that you wake up every morning that's pushing you forward, that's always driving you? How do you get motivated? Remember Sonny, the painter, the guy with the cigarette hanging on, you know? So, when I'm studying for the bar, and that's when I'm literally, Andrew, losing my hair. Because I'm like, I'm looking at the books, and then I would look down, and I'd be like eight hairs as I'm, and I used to have like hair, you know, I wasn't born this way, I actually was born this way. But, and I remember coming to my parents' house one like Saturday or Sunday, and Sonny's on the ladder working, and, and you know, he knows my mother since she's a little girl, so he knows me since I was in the womb. And he goes, oh, what's, what's the matter with you? I go, Sonny, I go, I'm studying this, hey, this test, and then, let me tell you something, Martha. It's all temporary horseshit, and then you die. And as simple and stupid as that may sound, you know, we're only here for a finite amount of time, and I, I think I'm blessed with the genes of my paternal grandfather, who I'm named after, Artie Idala, who 
they lived life to the fullest, especially that generation. I mean, my grandfather lived till a month short of 92, but a lot of people died at a very, very young age. They were hungry. They were this. So if you had the most simple things like a roof over your head, some food, something to drink, maybe a little red wine, like you, you were, you had it made. And I do look around. I mean, I am, not only am I blessed, I'm spoiled. I'm a spoiled brat. I, I, the only reason I'd like to think I'm not spoiled is because I'm so appreciative of what I have. Somehow or another, I've put this law firm together of, I didn't have a game plan. If someone thinks I have like a, a, a cabinet here that has some you know, three ring binder or how to do things, I don't. It just, people came into my life through luck, through maybe I have some good judgment and judging people as their, their character. Um, and so I wake up in the morning, I'm happy about where I go. I mean, my wife is spectacular. I mean, I just, I adore her. I'm so, I find her so beautiful in my eyes. She's just exquisitely beautiful. She's a spectacular mom. Look at me, I'm crying. And I'm, I'm just, I just, I'm very, very lucky. And I'm, you know, I'm 52. My dad's 82. He's still totally with it. <laughs> my mom is going to be 80. She doesn't stop talking. My sister's my best friend in the whole world, and, and my brother-in-law, Carl, and my niece and nephew. I have two beautiful children. If I don't wake up happy, I'm an asshole. That's great. It, it, you know, I feel the same way about my family, and when you're fortunate to be in a position that you can help people, and doing even just like something like this, where young lawyers and lawyers our age can hear from us, because... First, yes, they ever cried on the smiley podcast. Yeah, I think so. Well, you know... Nobody would have seen him because you're the first live guest. Oh, I love it, man. You know, you've been interviewed and questioned by, you know, all the stars of Fox News and the networks. But who's the one that gets you to bring the emotion? That's right. Nice. Well, you know, it's got to do with our relationship. So, so you, you're, know, you are in the same boat as I am. I mean, I, I, don't have, I don't have a mansion like you do and like drive a Maserati like you do. But besides <laughs> that, I don't have a mansion or a Maserati. But. <laughs> So there's some other questions, you know, trial skill stuff about jurors and all that. I'm going to ask everybody to email it to Andrew at the Mentor ESQ, the trial questions, because in the little bit of time we have left, we'll still try and answer some questions. But I want to get a little more behind the scenes of Arthur Idala, the the person, um, because, you know, people see us in suits all the time and people might be surprised to know that I'm a really good dancer and I got good rhythm and I'm the guy out with my wife on the dance floor at weddings and parties and the bar mitzvahs. And they're the ones handed me the, the gifts because I got the moves. No one sees that part of me. No one knows what the party fun side of me because they see me as the guy in the suit, the serious guy, the lawyer. Um, tell something about you, Arthur, that Maybe not everybody knows, even the steak night guys that were here, you know, when the lights aren't on. And, you wow. know, what do you what do you like to do for fun or something interesting that no one no one really sees the real Arthur? Well, the steak night guys know, because usually when I'm doing that stuff, I'm with them. That's true. Um, and, you know, I just want to make a point. I really try to make the jury know that side of me, whether it's in voir dire, which in federal court, where there's no voir dire, it really handcuffs me. But, you know, in my opening statement, I, mean, I, I did this uh, closing statement and, and, and a homicide. And I talked about my grandmother making gravy on Sunday and the red sauce. And 
and how she put it, you know, she, you got to start with good tomatoes. And if you don't start with good tomatoes, it doesn't matter what you put in there. It's not going to be good enough. And like, everyone was like that analogy of the sauce, but that's all true. Like, that's what my grandmother told me, you know, like you got to have good tomatoes. Um, so speaking of cooking, I love doing the Christmas Eve, seven fishes. I cook for everyone. When Marion and I bought our home, really what, what was very, very important to me more than anything else is how many people could we sit for Christmas Eve? because that's my thing. Um, so I do, I love to cook. I love to entertain. Um, when things lightened up with the coronavirus, um, I had so much company at my house. Everyone's socially distanced, but people were dying to get out. Yeah, Andrew, I was going to the supermarket every Thursday or Friday. It's, they were so happy when they saw us because we were spending so much money just on food, like regular food to entertain. I love bringing people together and, and just shooting the breeze and, and again like the, the the dinner that we have in ruth's chris steakhouse where there's 30 of us and just sitting around and just enjoying each other yeah. and sharing in your happiness and sharing in your sad times and being there to help you and and you being there to help me um i mean i love italy i have been to italy a lot a lot a lot a lot a lot of times i i own a piece of a restaurant in milan i'm associated with a law firm um you know, I, I, that, I give all that credit to my dad. He sent me there at 16 years old. I wanted to kill him. I didn't speak Italian. There's no cell phones. There's no ATMs. He gave me a bunch of money. He gave me an address. He put me on a plane. Wow. And I cried the whole time. The wow. next time I cried was when I flew back. It was the most magical time. I, I lived in Rubino, which is the little town. I did a semester abroad. Uh, I went to court in Milan and a judge called me up and I'm on the record in Italian, which, I mean, I speak cool. Italian well enough to, to get anything I want, but not to be in the Supreme Court right. in Milan, but I did it. Um, I have a little thing for automobiles. So I got a couple of those. Nothing. I my target audience, my target purchase is I find people towards the sunset of their lives who have and they're the original owners. Yeah. So I got a guy; he's the original owner of a Volvo P eighteen hundred, which people wouldn't know, but it looks like a little Aston Martin, and it's beautiful. And so I take it for a test drive. He was he just turned ninety, and I go, uh, it was beautiful. So I take it around the block. I go, all right, Mike. I go. What, you know, what do you think of the price? He goes, I don't know. Let me think about it. And he thinks about it. He goes, look, I paid $5,000 for it brand new in 1971. He goes, wow. I'd like to get my money back. Oh. <laughs> I go, okay. You got it. Yeah. So, and wow. I, you know, I like, I just like cleaning my cars. And, and now yeah. my, my two sons, Luca and, and Arthur, and now my nephew, Nicholas, and my niece, Juliana, they're kind of getting excited on the car thing. I have a couple of old Alfa Romeos, convertibles, and little Arthur who's three likes to drive around the driveway. Um, and the, you know, I just like to take all those things and share them. You know, Dave spring came to my house with his son. They were driving all the cars and I know his wife, Julie was so, she's like, Oh my son, I had such, I had such a great time. And you know, I, I just want to make sure none of us lose the perspective. Yeah. Um, not that long ago, like really not that long ago, people came to this country from another country because they were starving. You think my great grandparents came here like, oh, let's check out New York. They came here because they were starving in Sicily. And to see what in a hundred years that we were from there to we, we probably in my house throw out more food in a week right. than my great grandparents ate in a month. And I don't even know if I'm exaggerating. My right. grandmother told me on Fridays, and my grandfather, my mother's father was a lawyer, but he worked for court counsel. He made nothing. 
they, on Fridays they would have potato and either potato and eggs and potato and peppers because that was the cheapest food was eggs and potatoes. But my grandmother made them taste like the best things in the whole wide world with the salt and the pepper and the oregano and the parsley and a little bit of hot sauce. But we went from that to like, well, you want the porterhouse, the filet mignon. And I try to keep that in mind because I was blessed to have all four of my grandparents. Um, and I got to hear their stories about how, and my dad, my dad grew yeah. up way poor, man, way poor. So the fact that you and I have been able to stand on the shoulders of the giants before us, that's what make, makes life worth living. Arthur, what's your take on the state of affairs in our profession in light of this pandemic? Um, as far as where we're at now, how you see the future? I know no one has a crystal ball, how things may may have changed for good or may get back. What do you, what, what's your take on things these days? Um, I think there'll be some good that came out of it from a um, logistical point of view. Like they're starting to do... Uh, court appearances yep. with a specific time as opposed to doing the cattle call. All right, let's have a hundred lawyers come in at nine o'clock. Yeah. Lucky guy who gets called at nine 15. Good. And if you're the unlucky woman who gets called at four 15, sorry, I sat here for all, all day. So right. I think there'll be certain things like that, that we work out and, and how to do things um, more efficiently. Um, I mean, I still think the court system has has a long way to go, but I think Judge DeFiori, the chief judge of New York, I think she's trying as hard as she can to be innovative. Um, I, I feel very bad for people who are in prison right now who have not been convicted of anything. Um, and they, you know, we have a client who was supposed to go to trial in May. I don't think there's going to be any trials in New York City, jury trial, full-blown jury trial yeah. until at least 2021. And I'm going to object to, oh, yeah, they're going to have the witness testify with a mask on. Really? Really? You're supposed to judge somebody's credibility like this? Right? I'm supposed to tell them, like, so you're telling the truth? Are you lying? Are you being honest? Are you being forthright? Are you, you know, how strong are your convictions on what you saw? So, um, you know, I feel bad for those people who are, who are locked up. Um, I think we need to do a better job now. I'm speaking as a criminal defense attorney, but our prisons need to be cleaned up a little bit. I mean, it's one thing being incarcerated and you can't see your family and your friends and you can't leave. You shouldn't be in the United States of America and in New York City. You shouldn't be living in a, a place that's not suitable for New York City. Yeah. That's the nicest way I can put it. So, um, I mean, there is a lot of reform, but it's a balancing test. I mean, the bail reform laws... I, I think it was almost like Obamacare. Like they passed it and then they were going to read the legislation. Like they passed, they passed these bail reform laws and, and then they figured it out. I went to court right at the very, very beginning of the pandemic, during the response, shut down, and I watched uh, some arrangements. And I couldn't believe these guys are getting ROI. Guy went into a bank, into a bank, and put a, a finger in his thing and, and tried to rob the bank. And they caught him right outside. He gets ROI. I'm like, how did that happen? Oh, under well, the new bail reform was because he didn't have an actual gun. He just displayed what appeared to be a gun. We can't sit down. For those who don't know who are listening, what is an ROI? Or ROR, released on your own consciousness. That means you don't have to put down a dollar. Yeah. Bail, you just you just get to go. Yeah. And um, whether we like it or not, or want to believe it or not, you know, having bail out there is is definitely a part of our system 
that helps keep New York safe. Um, I'm a huge fan of the New York City Police Department. Just like there are so many jerky lawyers in our profession and in the plumbing profession and in the automotive profession and in the doctor profession, yes, there are bad cops in the, in the police. And I'm sure there are some in the fire department and everywhere else. Unfortunately, police officers have a very, very difficult job. But without them doing their job, we're all in trouble. So, I mean, last night I left the office and I drove through um, Times Square. There were tons of police. I stopped. I rolled down the windows. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. I appreciate all you. And they were so receptive. They were so, I was like, I'm starting going through all of this. I was like, we love you. You guys make New York City great. They were like, thank you so much. Thank you so much. So, you know, we're in a very, we are living, Andrew, you and I right now, we're both we're about the same age. I mean, we are in the middle of if this planet God willing exists in 150 years, 200 years, they're going to be reading about this period of time in the history books between the pandemic and the, the social justice piece of it. You know, I mean, we're really living through it. And um, and the climate. And the climate. I mean, the whole thing. So we'll see. I mean, I, I am very optimistic. Every Here at 546 5th Avenue, 45th and 5th, everybody's here. Everybody's yep. The support staff, everyone's here. I believe in New York. Um, I doubled down on my lease here. I know other attorneys who are leaving. I know all kinds of other businesses, yeah. restaurants. We went out to eat last night. We're trying to support the restaurants and, and be good neighbors and good good supporters of New Yorkers. Is it going to take a month, six months, a year? No one on the planet Earth knows. But if I'm if I'm investing in the stock of New York City. Right now, at its low, I'm putting a lot of money into it because we don't know when, yeah. but in the reasonably short future, there's too much good here for it not to succeed. Arthur, uh, we have a little bit of time left, and I'd like to ask you, uh, you know, this podcast is called The Mentor ESQ, and the reason for the name of it is because I'm a big believer that what makes great lawyers uh, is that they've been exposed to somebody who's been their mentor and helped guide them either throughout or at a pivotal time in their life or their career. And that it's equally important that when you are in a position to mentor other lawyers, uh, that you pay it forward and that you help them uh, to become a, a great lawyer. You and I had the benefit of growing up, seeing our father, knowing what it's like to do deals on a handshake and, and just your, how important your reputation is and how you treat everybody. Um, what advice, and I know you mentor um, many young lawyers and your father is obviously your mentor. Um, what about the young lawyers in our profession, those that are recently out, uh, maybe currently in the DA's office, maybe out of the DA's office, at a law school, uh, trying to make their way, interested in trial work. What, what do you have to say to the young lawyers uh, listening and watching us as far as, you know, some good advice, you know, things you've learned that you think they'd benefit from? Number one, keep your ego in check. Um, and I don't care if you're the lead partner of Cravath, Swain and Moore, or you're working in corp counsel in the DA's office, you, 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 you just touched on it. You have to treat everybody with the most dignity and respect. And I'm talking about the clerks, the court officers, the people who keep that building clean, the people who keep the elevators running. I go out of my way to talk to all of them, check in with them. Hey, how you doing? Everything okay? 
thank you, thank you. Be gracious. Um, just because you're you're a lawyer and God bless you, you know, you got a big brain and you figured out a way to pass the bar exam and get a great job. Without those other pieces of the puzzle, your the system of justice, the wheels of justice cannot turn. So all great lawyers I know, from my friend Peter Thomas to uh, everyone's very, I see like when Pete walks around the courthouse in Queens, you know, he talks to everyone. My dad, one of his tricks was when he was on trial, he used to go early in the morning to the bakery in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, and he'd buy fresh Italian bread and give it to the clerk and the stenographer just to say thank you. I mean, oh, it's a bribe. Really? It's, the loaf of bread is 99 cents back in 1985. That's a bribe? No, it's a gesture of gratitude. Thank, yeah. thank you. Thank you. And then that's, you know, that's on the human side. From a legal side, I'll tell you what, what Barry Schreiber, one of my mentors in the Brooklyn DA's office, taught us like the first week. There is no substitute for preparation. No matter how gifted you are, no matter how, what a great orator you are, there is no substitute for preparation. So you got to know your case. You got to know know it, it, you know, within reason, right? If you're going in front of German, you don't really need to study the whole file. But if you know this is a case that's heading to trial, or you're going to go in for a proffer session with the United States Attorney's Office, you better know what's going on and don't get caught, you know, sleeping. And besides that, um, there was a, uh, one of the judges in the appellate division was lucky enough to swear in his own son. And I happened to be there uh, to the bar. And he said, you know, when you're a lawyer, there's going to be many times along the road of the law where you're going to hit a fork in the road and you can take the high road or you can take the low road. And a lot of times the low road is easier and maybe more financially reward. He said, but always take the high road. And you'll be so pleasantly surprised at those you need along the way. Mm -hmm. And as you know, Andrew, we are tempted with ethical dilemmas on a regular basis. And just don't take the bait and do the right thing. Do the right thing for your client above all. The right thing based on ethics and the law and your own personal values. Yeah. Then you'll do what we get to do. Put our head on the pillow at night and sleep like a baby, like a rock. If you're not looking over your shoulder, you're not saying, well, I told this guy to do that. Because <laughs> if he does it that way, he gets to pay me extra money. And we'll see what happens. Or do things in a way where I'm not going to get paid any more money. But he's going to get the right result, and it's just—it's just such an easier way to go through life, knowing that you've done what's right. That's great advice, Arthur. You and I could talk, and we have talked for long, <laughs> long times, and I'm enjoying this thoroughly. And uh, I'd love to continue the conversation, but people have places to go and things to do, or maybe they don't. Maybe they'd be happy. Well, to well, I'm heading to New Jersey, the Freehold, New Jersey. I represent a car dealership to go to a town board meeting to argue that they could argue they could open up a new dealership on Route 9 and I'm going to be talking about what kind of lights they're going to be colonial lights versus box lights box lights and where the car carriers going to come in and drop off the cars and that's the part that we get to do especially in our practices where we really don't have to answer to anyone except our dads where you could take these little projects yep. and and have some fun with it and you know, you and I are laughing about it, but for the guy who owns this dealership, this is the most important thing for him. I mean, he's got millions of dollars invested in his Mitsubishi dealership. He needs it. He needs the approval so he can open the car dealership to make money, to pay back the loan, to, to feed his family. So we're always trying to do good, kid. 
Arthur, before I let you go, I'm going to ask you a question. I ask everybody that joins me on the podcast. Can you please give me your definition of what it means to be a great lawyer? Passion. You got to be passionate. You got to believe in what you're doing as a lawyer. And then you have to believe in your, your client's case or at least the strategy that you determined for your client's case. And if there, you know, you mentioned earlier about energy. Um, you have to have that energy and that passion and that fuels everything else. It fuels your brain. It fuels your, your scholar, scholarly, as, the scholarly aspect of your case. So you've got to feel it. You've got to want it. you got to, I want to do this. I want to achieve this result. And God willing, even if you're a little short on the facts or a little short on another aspect of the case, the passion can carry over the goal. I think that's great advice. And you certainly have a lot of passion. There's no doubt uh, for anyone who knows you uh, that you are a great lawyer and you are just a great representative of our profession. Uh, the way you handle yourself, especially, you know, when you're on the news and you're talking about cases like Harvey Weinstein and in the middle of all of it, you know, you're being clear, you're, you're, you're speaking straight to people, people can relate to you. And I just give you big kudos on uh, the person you are and the lawyer you are. And I'm so appreciative that I finally got you on and uh, maybe I'll get you on for part two. I think we'll get a lot of people, a lot of people to want to hear some more yeah, from uh, Arthur Ayala. Whatever you want, Andrew, whatever you want. Thank you. Warm regards to your dad and the rest of your family. And uh, at a dollar for tuna and Cameron's, we're always here if you need a smile. Yes, thank you. And uh, we'll make sure your information of how to contact you and your firm will be in the podcast description. So for those of you that want to reach out to Arthur, uh, you can do so. You can find his contact information in the podcast description. I thank you so much for joining me on this very wonderful, special edition of having Arthur Idala on the Mentor ESQ. Hopefully you enjoyed this podcast and I'd ask that you please share it with your friends and family, like it, forward it around and spread the word and keep on listening. We're going to you know, the goal of this podcast is to keep getting, giving great information and great guidance to all of you for listening. So thanks again and uh, see you next time.